Hello and welcome to Movies Last Night. On today's episode, Scott and Jason will be discussing both the book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and the David Fincher adaptation starring Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig. Thanks for tuning in. Please enjoy the show. published in 2005, translated into English in 2008, and it since went on to become an international bestseller. And it's part of what they call the Millennium Trilogy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it was written originally by a gentleman called Stieg Larsson, who unfortunately um, died before the book came out. He was born in 1954 and died in 2004. So he died at 50 years of age of a heart attack. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to like, you know, get to that point of your life. And I guess so his backstory, he was a journalist, Swedish publication. He was working on this novel. And then do you know how it got picked up or how they found the novel after he died? Because it wasn't being already in this in the stages of being published when he died, was it? Uh, no, there were a couple rumors going around that like his mother found the transcript after he died or something like that. But then when I dug deeper into that, I couldn't actually find any information that verified that. So what I personally assume is that, you know, this was being written with, you know, the intentions of being put out. And so he's probably working in tandem with an editor, probably with a publishing company as well. So it was probably well on its way to being published when he died and so they probably just picked it up and polished it off and then put it out afterwards that's what i assume anyways and i guess that over the years there has been some kind of controversy about the translation or at least the initial translation um some people accuse it of being um too flowery or like to be too overly expressive in its english translation interesting i wasn't aware of that yeah but i truthfully haven't read the book now I don't really see where they're getting that from because the the book is very, it doesn't feel very like written like that. It's it, it's written very straight, if you ask me. Yeah, I guess what they probably, what probably would have happened would be like some of the, the rough bits that don't really translate too well into English. They probably came up with the proper colloquialisms and all that type of stuff. So that that might yeah. be it. Yeah, that sounds about right. So the book actually went on. Let's have a look. The book was a huge success. So this is obviously, we're going to be only talking about the first book in the trilogy today, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Now, its original title is actually Men Who Hate Women, which is a great title for a book. That's insane. I did not know that. Yeah, and it's also, um, I think it's a better title, obviously, but um, and I think... Um, just a side note about the original publication, the first edition, the Swedish first edition. The book cover is really, really cool. You've seen it? Uh-huh. Yes, I have. And he made it look just like it was an actual magazine. Uh, Article. Yeah. Oh, like, like the front page of yeah. the magazine. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool looking. I yeah, did see that. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, so uh, Men Who Hate Women. Um, let's have a look. So I guess over the years, I think it's sold close to, it's in the millions like it was a huge success along the lines of like um 
obviously not in the same genre, but along the lines of like Twilight, you know? Yeah. Like one of those sensation books, all like Fifty Shades of Grey, where as somebody who doesn't read an awful lot, I was very aware of these books, you know, just like I was aware of the the other books because it kind of broke through pop culture. Right. In a way. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, there's not really too much to say about him because obviously he died, uh, died too young, unfortunately, at 50. And then since then, the... the um, the, I guess, is it like the IP you would class? The, the IP has been transferred and people are writing yeah, people like are, follow-up trilogies? People are continuing the story of Elizabeth Salander after this trilogy. Uh, I personally haven't read any of those. I've only stuck to the original trilogy that he wrote. Um, I might continue on at some point, but I don't know. It's not his work. It's not his ideas, so... Uh, that's kind of what's been holding me back from continuing. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any plans to do that. And you've read all three books, correct? Yes, multiple times. Oh, multiple times. Well, here's a funny story I was going to tell you. So it's kind of related, but it's not really spoiling anything. But um, I was under the impression that I, I'd, the second movie that I saw was the second American adaptation of the books. Um, which is directed by Fede Alvarez, who's a great director. He did um, the Evil Dead remake. Um, he's just, I, I like him a lot. Anyway, what's interesting is that bo- the movie I saw, which I thought was the second book, it's not. It's the first book of the second trilogy. Okay. So it's not actually <laughs> from the Millennium Trilogy. Interesting. And like, so the whole time, so what I did, like, check this out. This is how crazy it is. So um, I'd seen the um, the movie we're going to talk about today, the Fincher interpretation, uh, the American interpretation of Girl with Dragon Tattoo. I'd saw that. Then obviously I read this book with you. But before reading the book with you, I actually saw the sequel, what I thought was the sequel, but it's not actually the sequel. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, this feels really removed from the first movie. Um, and then what I did was I ended up not... Um, not renting, I ended up re- like listening to the audiobook of the third book in the Millennium Trilogy. So I've I've now listened to the first and the third, but not and the second. seen the movie inter- interpretation of the first of the second trilogy. Oh, well, that's that's a, a shotgun approach if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Like we said, we don't know what he would be doing now. Um... I guess he would be 70 now. He'd be in his 70s. Well, I assume he probably would have written a couple more trilogies about it or branched off into a new IP. Who knows? But it's a shame because I really do enjoy these books. They're just so, so well put together. Like everything that, like you read a book and you like, you think it's complex and well thought out and planned out. And then you read this book and you're like, oh, okay, never mind. it's just so intricate and i love it yeah so um we'll go to you first then because you've obviously i think you've now how many times you've probably read this multiple times at least the first one uh yeah um i think i've probably read the first one uh, i don't know four or five times by now i mean it's it's been over the years it's not like i read them back to back to back the first time i read this story was 2010 i think so it's it every couple of years i'll come back to it just give me a rundown why you like how how do you feel about it i take you you're a huge fan obviously like you said and like um 
without giving away spoilers and we'll get in i suppose we'll talk spoilers for the book and the movie when we get into the second half of the show okay yeah so jason let's give us a plot a, a basic plot rundown of uh, girl with dragon tattoo all right so uh this is a story about uh an old man who's uh, the leader of a a major corporation, uh, or at least he was back in, the, I think, like the 40s or something like that. Uh, and he had this favored niece, I believe is a niece, um, who would send him flowers on his birthday every year. Not just any kind of flowers. It was always pressed and dried and put together in a handmade frame. Uh, so it was very unique, very distinct. So it was a, a very personal thing between the two of them. Well, at some point, she was murdered. And the thing was, is those photographs of pressed flowers, well, not photographs, those pressed flowers and uh, kept coming for years and years and years. So this old man, Mr. Vanger, uh, eventually hires uh, Mikael Bloomquist, which is uh, the main character of the story, to go and do some research to try to figure out who the killer is. The, to be honest, it, for me, it was a little bit over my head, but it deals a lot in that kind of like uh, socio-economic business kind of jargony kind of kind of speak. That's a, it's a, let's say it's a little dense, shall we? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, it's a little dense. But really at the heart of it is this family drama based around this missing young lady and then um, which sets up this mystery, basically, this intriguing mystery that um, Blomquist, Michael Blomquist, is brought in to basically uncover the truth of. Now, it's not without there being a carrot on the stick for Michael Blomquist because he, unfortunately, was in, involved in a case with a gentleman called, uh, is it Venestrom? Yes. And... He was, he's so, Blomquist is actually a reporter and he writes for a magazine called Millennium. Now, Millennium is uh, left-leaning, very, um, very like, investigative, very interesting, interested in like Sweden's like nationalistic right-leaning um, pol- politicians and politics and very interested in business. And so Blomquist was doing like, I guess it was like an investigational piece on this guy called Venestrom, who's a very, very successful businessman in Sweden, very much from the new school of business, slightly different to the Vangas, where he's kind of like, I guess like new money, more of an entrepreneur, make it, making waves for himself. And what happens is um, Venestrom decides to, in a way, kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is he, he sues him for liable. He sues Blomquist for liable, but basically it's more of a way to just kind of cripple him financially because he knows he can't compete with him financially and he more or less bankrupts him. And it, because of that, ends up pretty much bankrupting the magazine too. So it's very like strategic. Now what happens is Venestrom goes through all this and it goes through the courts and Blomquist actually ends up getting sentenced to three months in prison um, as like a side effect of you know, this whole big court case. So when Wanger actually approaches um, Michael Blomquist, he's kind of doing it along the lines of, hey, if you can help me investigate my missing niece um, and they try to uncover the truth of this family drama, I can help you get back at Venestrum because I have some information. Yeah, I'll give you all the dirt. Used to yeah. You. yeah, I'll give you the dirt. So it's a win-win. And whilst doing this, we will reinvest into Millennium, the magazine, and put you back on back like back get you back up you know what i mean get you back and running 
put you back on the board of the magazine. So it's like, it's like, he's not just doing this for the benefit of his own health. You know what I mean? Right. No, it's, he, it's part of, it's very much it's, very selfish. <laughs> All of it yeah, is. For sure. Yeah. He's definitely out for revenge, so to speak. So with that being said, what happens and where the story goes without giving away too many spoilers uh, or any at all is it gets more and more convoluted and, and basically we start to have to like we delve into this family's dark history and it's a really dark history way more than we could ever conceive and then basically the, so you might be asking okay we've got to this point and then you're like okay well where's the girl where's the girl with the dragon tattoo the titular girl with the dragon tattoo from the book and really can you see my cat yes. on my desk? <laughs> okay, Jack, you can't be on here, buddy. I'm going to kick you off in a minute. Um, okay, so where is the girl with the dragon tattoo? So Elizabeth Salander is her name. And the how this all ties together is when Vanger actually wants to bring in Blomquist to help him with the investigation, what he decides to do is he hires a, a, this young I guess she's like kind of a hacker slash uh, cyber detective, so to speak. Um, and he basically wants a background check done on Blomquist. Okay. In which he get in Salander, who's this young lady, she's super awesome at it. And she does a very, very thorough check on him. Goes into his finances, goes into everything, his situation with Venestrom, everything. Okay. Including his personal history. Including his personal history. Yes. So... How she is introduced into to Blomquist is when Blomquist finds out about this, he's like, well, that was the most thorough job anybody's ever done. I'm an investigative journalist. This this woman who I don't know knows me better than even my family right now. So he actually enlists her to come onto the case to help him figure out the Vanger mystery. And that is your girl with the dragon tattoo. Elizabeth Salander has a large tattoo of a dragon on her back. So that's how we're introduced to her, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> now we can't talk about spoilers. So um, there's a lot happens in the book and a lot specifically happens with Salander. But what's interesting to me, Jason, is when you think about it, the book is you have two protagonists. And then, but the, at the same time, half of the book, they're not actually working together or really like connected to each other at all. So it, it's kind of no. like. It's inter it's an interesting setup for a story because it's not really following one story. We're getting concurrent stories that kind of inter interweave uh, interweave with each other and then like hit a crossroads where everything kind of starts falling into place. Yeah, but that's, that's kind of interesting. That's that's one of the things that I really like about the book is that it's not just about figuring out the whole Harriet situation, which is the the niece that goes missing. Um, half of it is just about the whole how everything comes together because you, you, you see her, uh, and her whole backstory and then you see him and, and then it's just, you just watching and waiting and to see them collide. And then eventually they get together and then you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. It's like, there's a, definitely comes a point in the, in the, in the novel way when you know the, the team's together and then shit's going to go down. You know what I mean? That's the kind the real catalyst for the book, because I feel like, a the the book it, the book itself is very it's written in a very interesting way where he's very very Stieg Larsson was very interested in like details just because obviously he was a journalist so that comes across so the book it feels very very 
procedural as it is, but very cold in a way at the beginning because it's a lot of information gets thrown at you very early on, you know? A lot of information, a lot of information about the history of Sweden, a lot of information about um, politics in Sweden through the years. And like, it, it, it first, when you start reading, you're like, hold on a second, like, why, why are we going this in depth? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, it sets, it starts off and it sets up the whole uh, fiasco of uh, Bloomquist uh, libel case and all that type of stuff. And then you're like, okay, let's get to this. And then it totally switches gears and you're like, what happened to all that? <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. I feel like tonally the book shifts a lot. And when it does shift, it's very abrupt, you know, um, which I think is fascinating because I don't really think I've read a lot that's like that, you know, and I can't. I mean, obviously, I don't feel like I'm qualified enough to say whether that's good or bad, but I don't really. It, it's different. I'll put it that way, put it that way, you know. Um, OK, so. We've covered the basic plot of the of the novel without getting into too much detail. Um, so in, in a few words, Jason, we don't have to get super deep on it. We don't have to get super in-depth. Um, tell me what you like about the novel and tell me what, if it's anything that you don't like. Uh, but I'm guessing you're more or less pretty favorable on it. I am. Yeah, obviously, because I've read it multiple times. Um, yeah, no, I just I, I, I like how how well you get to know the characters and their motivations throughout the book specifically uh lisbeth and mikhail um the the things that i if i had to nitpick and pick on something that i don't like is that it gets really dark at times to the point where it's uncomfortable but then again that's done intentionally so it's 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 a love and hate thing on that subject for the, but for the most part of the book uh, very favorable of it yeah i i enjoyed it a lot too i i will say that i agree with you like the movies uh sorry not the movie the book the book's tonal shifts are very jarring and then there is one particular instance which we'll get into when we cover spoilers but i at this point i guessing most people listen to this are probably probably aware of at least the movie and, and know what we're talking about but there's a specific scene uh there's two scenes actually i would say that are pr- very very uncomfortable in in the book in like for me what was interesting to me um reading the book having already seen the movie and so i knew what was going to happen for some reason it plays a lot worse in the book and in and it's not so much that it plays worse because obviously we can it's one thing when it's being described but it's another thing when you can see it Um, but the whole thing's very unpleasant and then I have to admit when I was reading the book this part of me feels like and I, this might just be me. I, I'm not a big fan of the way he. I, I feel conflicted about his uh, description of events. You know what I mean? Like there's something off with it, and I can't really put my finger on it. And it's was talking about specifically um, a scene in in a treatment of of Elizabeth Salander, and I can't. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but something about it seems a little too lurid in my opinion. And I, and I don't know, like, I, I don't know if I'm the only person that like, I can't be the only person that's thought this, but it feels like, um, 
So basically, we have a bunch of men, and obviously, uh, men who hate women was the original title, so that gives something away of it, right? But what what's interesting about this is we have men who are essentially monsters in the, in this book on two on two sides. So we have um, a, a man who's a monster, two men on one side who Blomquist is dealing with, who are just abhorrent human beings, and then Salander in her personal life before she even starts to become acquainted and starts to like hang out with Blomquist face to face, she deals with a character who's just an absolute nightmare of a human being. Um, but what's interesting is is in the middle you have the Blomquist character who is really much portrayed as like a ladies' man, like quite a bit of a ladies' man. So it's very interesting because like you don't really know there isn't really a, a, a depiction of any men who are good in this and like yeah and, I, and, I would say that Mikhail is is to use the gaming terms I guess more of a chaotic neutral <laughs> I guess you is that say. what you would describe him as <laughs> uh, not quite but uh, yeah he he's he's he essentially is a good guy, but he is also a borderline womanizer, but not quite. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I think that what's weird about the the thing is because for me is that's the juxtaposition that I find really uncomfortable. The fact that like it's like when we have a, a main character who are following where women like are automatically just kind of like sexually interested in him. Yeah. And then we have these other men who are like sexual deviants, but like the, it's such a weird balance because there's no like neutral ground. No. In it, you know what I mean? There's no like middle ground where it's like, Oh, this is just a normal guy who has a normal relationship with women. All of the relationships are like really heightened. Yeah, there's only one character really that kind of comes across as like the normal dude, and that's uh, uh, Armansky, uh, Lisbeth's employer. Yeah, he's Armansky is the only one that really comes across as uh, a normal dude because he has like one one scene where he admits to having strange attraction to Lisbeth, but then he's like, "No, can't go there." I'm happily married. What the crap? And then he's back to being a normal person. So he's he's yeah. he's the closest. <laughs> he's the closest to yeah, I guess in a way because in in, in who we're talking about is so basically Elizabeth Salander is she is what you I guess she's a ward of the state. I guess is yes. how you describe her. Yes. Um, now she had a troubled background. And um, because of that, she uh, her affairs and her finances are being kind of like managed, like almost like nannied. And she has like a, a, a basically like a, a, I guess like um, is in a way like a guidance counselor, somebody who helps her manage her affairs, checks in on her, you know what I mean? Like follows up with her mental health, makes sure she's doing okay, she's feeding herself, she's got a place to stay. And then, but she has like a, an interesting relationship with him. And he is very much like, um, at first he finds himself like very attracted to her. Yeah. And then, and then he's like, but, but in he, a strange like, way, like, yeah, in a strange way, which is another, so everyone's kind of weird. Everybody's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and like, he does kind of like rein it in, but he is, he's a little touch and go too. For me, I guess that the only person who probably comes across like, down the middle is uh Vanger, the um Martin Vanger's father. Um sorry, his uncle. Um 
Henrik. Henrik Wenger, yes, that's it. Yes, so Henrik comes across in a way like a kind of a doting elderly man, you know what I mean? He seems pretty harmless, you know? It, it comes across that way anyway. Now, I as the as the plot unravels, he's not entirely, he's not entirely, he's, he's still a cutthroat businessman. He's still that, comes from that, like, you know what I mean? That, um, that, that heritage and that background. But really, I think that's the only semi-neutral male uh, character in the book. But anyway, that was a bit of a side tangent, but I just found that, I found that very interesting when I, when I read the book, you know what I mean? Yeah. As, as it progresses. And um, if I was to say like I had any issues with the book, um, other than other than that, I feel like the book is a little long. It's oh, I think it's over 500 pages originally when it was printed. Um, now, you're shaking your head, Jason, and I know that you're somebody who reads a lot more than I do. <laughs> yeah, for me, the longer the book, the better. <laughs> the more in-depth we get into it, the more I get attached to the characters, the more... The story, you know, is drug out. I, I just never want it to end by the time the, the book finishes. So the longer it is, the better for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And I get that. I just, I think maybe it's because I did it the other way around and it coming from the film, which is obviously a, a far more condensed version of the narrative that like, um, it felt like it had a lot of, uh, too much, too much meat on its bones, the book. Like part of me was just like, like they could trim this down. But obviously that's like, like I said, I'm coming to it back to front. You know, so I'm obviously always going to think that if I've come from something that's like two and a half hours long to something that takes me 16 hours to read, I'm going to be like, why is it so long? It's the same story, but it's, you know, there's a lot more to it. That's for sure. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. So really, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I'll go ahead and say for our book club, the first, the first book in the book club, uh, movies last night. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, I actually just finished it today. So a few hours before we started recording. So perfect times. It's all very fresh in my head. The book was actually picked up. The trilogy, the Millennium Trilogy, was actually filmed and released in Sweden already um, before we get to David Finch's movie adaptation of the book. Um, now, all three movies were, were shot, but I, to my understanding, Jason, they're kind of like TV movie adaptations. So obviously a lot smaller budget um, and with a slightly slightly longer runtime and um they all three of them were already put out now because of the success of the book and then the translation of the book obviously in the rest of the world and then the success of people were were talking about these movies to these adaptations and people were starting to watch those so sony was uh very keen to jump on and, and acquire the ip the rights to make the movie um so it was a big it was a big to do and uh, I guess it was very very highly anticipated and then uh, eventually uh, scheduled on to direct was David Fincher David Fincher who is a very very talented filmmaker obviously we know him as the director of Seven he was rolling into this off his I think his first Oscar win for The Social Network um, so this is somebody kind of dream pick as a director for this kind of material because he not only did he do seven, he also did the Zodiac um, movie based on the the Zodiac killings. Um, so already, this is somebody who's very, very capable of doing the procedural crime uh, adaptation. We know he's very good at. Then after this movie, he actually went on to do um, Gone Girl, which is another book that was very, very popular and another crime procedural. So he obviously has a flair for it. Even to his most recent work, where he did. Um, for Netflix, where he was doing the um, 
the FBI, uh, it's Manhunters, which is like the FBI profilers for serial killers. Um, like a, it's like a, it's a drama, but it's based around true events, you know, where, where the, this team in the FBI basically came up with the term serial killer and basically started to say, how, how can we profile these people? You know what I mean? So Fincher, very interested in the subject. Perfect, perfect choice to make this movie. So then obviously we find out that Rooney Mara has been cast as Elizabeth Salander and that's a big deal. So that was, I guess, it's a big deal because she's at this point already before they start making this movie, like a pop culture icon, Elizabeth Salander, the girl with the dragon tattoo. It's very much the the mohawk, the skinny goth, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a look, you know what I mean? She's kind of become like, not only that, she is a very... Um, portrayed through the book too, um, like a feminist icon too. So she's like very, very like sellable, you know, in terms of that. So the other casting of note for the movie when they got to making the movie was they cast um, Daniel Craig as Michael Blomquist, which I think is very interesting casting because Daniel Craig is synonymous with being James Bond. So when all of a sudden we see James Bond, who still looks like James Bond because he was right during his run of filming those movies. I think this was done just before he started filming Spectre. He's in very, very good shape in the movie. And it's very hard to distinguish the fact that you're watching James Bond when you watch this because he's, but I suppose that helps with his portrayal of Blumquist because he's, he's very much the ladies man. He's very much a charmer. Yeah. So in a way, I can say that it's kind of good casting, even though people argue that it isn't. I still think it is kind of good casting. I never had an issue with Daniel Craig uh, playing Bloomquist. But then again, I just recently watched the movie, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I'm not even thinking about James Bond when I go into it because I just read yeah. the book. So. <laughs> exactly yeah so i think it i think it's great casting but anyway so that that was the the that that was the lineup for the movie and the movie came out and the movie was a moderate success um i think it made like three close to 300 million dollars and it cost 90 million dollars to make now as a point of reference the first um of the millennium trilogy the swedish uh movie adaptation was only 13 million to make so you could have made like six of them for the cost of this first um, David Fincher movie. And you can tell on screen because the movie looks immaculate. Um, all filmed um, and set in Stockholm, Sweden, which is they, they made the, the decision to like keep a lot of the movie there too. Um, so movie came out. It was a moderate success. It didn't set the world on fire, but it did pretty well. And interestingly, Jason, the movie came out at Christmas on Christmas Day. That's Did you know that? Interesting movie to release on Christmas. Would not think yeah, about that. Yeah, it's super weird. And I think that is part of the reason why the movie didn't do as well as it could have done. It was projected to do more, but I think it it, it came out alongside um Sherlock Holmes, the um the Robert Downey Jr., Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, and it came out alongside another family-friendly movie. So if you think about it, this isn't really the movie that you go to see on Christmas no. Day. With your family. No, not at all. I I mean, if it were me, I would have put this movie out. I don't know. I I wouldn't try to put it out in the same, like the summer season. I'd probably try to put it out in like October-ish or September or something like that. Yeah. Now, there's a theory, though, Jason, that they put this movie out specifically at this time because in order for it to... um, get a lot more Oscar buzz because it was right in the period where a lot of Oscar movies start coming out usually traditionally is end of the year early January so it was very strategically put there 
And I think it's kind of interesting. And I actually saw the movie on opening day. So I saw, saw it, it on Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously I loved it, but I'm not, I didn't go with my children. Oh, like my, you know what I mean? Right. I didn't take my like family. I was like, oh, hey, grandpa, let's go and see Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. You know what I mean? And then everybody's looking at each other like, what are we watching right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess um, January would have made more sense. <laughs> just, just knock it back three weeks. Come yeah, on. right. You would think so. It's very interesting. I think the tagline on the poster was something like the feel bad hit of the winter. Or something like it was like the tagline, um, which I think, I don't know, it's pretty interesting. Can you remember anything about the build up to this movie coming out, Jason? To the movie coming out? No, not yeah, at all. You, at the time, <laughs> you don't remember? I never even, I, it, it was not on my radar at all. <laughs> I, I, it went right past me. Yeah, I was super anticipating it. And um, I remember at the time, somebody leaked the trailer early, like four days early. I think it was leaked on torrent sites or something like that, or like somehow it leaked. Um, and it was very much like viral marketing style, like Sony obviously, but hacking into the hacker technology element aspect of it. And so the whole marketing campaign for the movie was excellent. It was really, really good. Um, and when some of the trailer leaked, everybody was talking about it. And then Sony were like, oh, it didn't, you know what I mean? We were hacked or whatever, but it was actually like, it was really... I probably just them that released it early but um noticeable things on the trailer is like straight away um that we have the the soundtrack on the trailer was automatically apparent because it was uh the Karen O um who's the singer from yeah yeah, yeah she was doing um it's a, a Led Zeppelin uh cover which is um I can't remember the name of it um but anyway so straight away like we're introduced to that like um when the trailer hit, it was very obvious the style that Fincher was going for with this movie. You know what I mean? The look, the soundtrack, the the like hyper goth kind of like tech aspect, which is right up his alley and which is perfect because that's basically the, the Elizabeth Salander down in a nutshell. You know what I mean? Pretty much. Yeah. So super hyped. And uh, yeah, I remember being there opening day to see it. Um, so really, I think... So like you said, Jason, the first time you saw this movie was just recently, um, that, which I find is crazy that it, it never, even over the years, like caught it on cable or never just like crossed your path. No, you see, I've never been like a super huge movie buff. Of course, I like going and watching a, a good movie, but books are always superior to movies, in my opinion, usually. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen... Well, with a couple exceptions, uh, uh, a time where I've read a book and then watched a movie and been like blown away and had reason to watch the movie uh, rather than read the book. One of those mm -hmm. would be the born, uh, born identity, but that's mm -hmm. because it's two different stories. And I like both of the stories that are put out by both the book and the film. Um, so yeah, whenever this movie came out, I guess I just wasn't couldn't have been bothered wasn't really interested and i don't know it was a mistake because it's a pretty good movie <laughs> but yeah it's interesting i i don't think you're alone though i think the, the movie just didn't it didn't really take off um i think i i it's weird that we would say a movie that made 300 million dollars is not a success but like really in for the eyes of these studios it's not really a success especially when you think about it might have cost ninety million to actually shoot and make the movie, but the marketing for the movie is probably like another ninety million. You know what I mean? So they, they the way they look at it is they have to make significant to 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 make it worth a while. You know what I mean? To keep making them, but 
That's uh, by the by. But yeah, so the movie came out. I've always lived there. I've probably seen the movie like close to 10 times at this point. So much so that when I actually finished rewatching it today before we did the podcast, it, I was so familiar with everything in it, you know. And it was very interesting watching it again, though, having read the book. Because that, we'll, we'll get into this when we start, we start getting into the spoiler section. But that was a very interesting experience. Over the years, there's been a few times where I've, read the book before I've seen the movie and I've had it play out that way. So Fight Club, which is another David Fincher movie, I read the book before I saw the movie. And what's interesting is Fincher is very good at that, I feel like, um, in, interpreting books. And when I read Fight Club, I was aware of the fact that they were making the movie Fight Club. So I already knew who was cast. So in my head, I already... When I was reading the book, I could it was plain as if I was watching the movie because I, I, Edward Norton was... In, you know what I mean? And like Brad Pitt was Tyler Durden. So I, I kind of already had that visualized. Now with this, it's a different experience because I, obviously when I was reading the book, all I could think about was Michael uh, Daniel Craig and all I could think as Blumquist, you know what I mean? I didn't have a picture of him being anybody else other than Daniel Craig. And Elizabeth Salander was Rudy Mara. So that's an interesting way to, to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I think that the casting for both of those characters was spot on at least from my my perspective especially uh the lisbeth um uh, I, I forget her name i don't i'm not good with actresses or actors names but yeah it's rudy mara yeah yeah she did a really good job yeah that's i kind of wanted to dig into that for you so like because obviously you had like a picture in your head of these characters you know what i mean so it's it's interesting that like so you're, now that's high praise so if you're if, if they did a good job for somebody like you, yeah. you know? Yeah, for me, whenever I read a book, um, a lot of times books will go into, like, you know, facial descriptions and stuff like that. But for me personally, that never really sticks unless it's something that's, like, you know, super apparent or, like, if they've got a huge scar across their face, which, you know, makes interactions kind of weird because everybody freaks out when they see him. I'll remember things like that. But for the most part, with these kind of... Uh, like with Lisbeth, for example, um, I never really thought about her facial structure or anything like that. It was more of like who she is as a person. Like I know that she's small. She's kind of a waifish little girl kind of thing. So so that's kind of what I had in my head. And um, the actress that played her pulled that off really well. Um, but speaking of the whole facial thing, one thing that I did really like that they uh, did for her in the film was they bleached her eyebrows. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so it made her look like she didn't have any eyebrows. And it was like, oof, weird. Uh, but that was great. I, I loved it. It's part of the things because she's supposed to be kind of a, a striking and intimidating whenever you see her to a point. Uh, and I, I think that was like the icing on the cake for, for her was the bleached eyebrows. Yeah, that's really funny that you mentioned that because um, the whole time when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, they just shaved her eyebrows. And it wasn't it wasn't until the last scene of the movie, which I'll not spoil, but the last scene of the movie, there's a close-up of her. And then I'm like, oh, it's just bleached. Eye they just bleached them. <laughs> it's a very, yeah, it, it gives her that kind of like alien kind of look. You know who uh, she reminded me of? Uh, have you ever heard of the band uh, Deontford? Oh, yes. She's a lot like uh, Yolandi. Yeah, she looks like Yolandi. Yep. At, at like the first mm -hmm. glance, I thought it was Yolandi until she opened her mouth. And I'm like, not, no, not, not Yolandi. 
Yeah, that's actually is a really good pull because she does it. And her hair's kind of similar to mm-hmm. Yolandi too. She's Obviously, got the, hers is black. The, the straight cut bangs that are really high on her forehead, kind of a thing. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. It's kind of has like the same facial uh, structure as well. Yeah, so. yeah. That's yeah, that's a good pull. So yeah, I I agree. Great great casting for Elizabeth Salander, and um, as a whole, I think great casting all around. Um, as a takeaway for me, I think the movie's very, very successful on multiple fronts, and not only as a faithful adaptation of the book, which we'll get into, but I feel like the movie is successful because it's um, it takes it takes something that's very labyrinthian and very, very complex as a plot, and I feel like it manages to uh, give all of that information over to you in a streamlined way, where where it's easy to follow. Um, it's not confusing and it's not like the this could be quite confusing i could see how this this narrative in the way the plot unfolds can be like because it's so complex but i feel like the movie does a good job of like telegraphing that in a way where you can keep up with it pretty straightforward like remote like it still has its complexities but i feel like it's pretty easy to follow and i feel like that's um a strength of finches too and i think like visually i think the movie's beautiful I think the choice to keep it filmed in, uh, I guess they filmed in like Germany and Sweden, but like the the winter setting for the movie and like just the way that the movie feels cold when um, Blomkist heads up to the Vanger estate and it's like he goes north of Stockholm. So he goes very, very far north in Sweden. There's like... um, we know it's cold there, but the the movie's really selling the cold to you. Like when he's outside, he's shivering. When he goes inside, like it, like you can hear wind through the cracks in the window, and it's like very hostile that environment. And it does a really good job of making you feel like you're in that little apartment with him, and then like you're like cooped up in this kind of very isolated outpost, which is very very. It, it's like it's all like filmed in like very very effectively and there's another thing i wanted to mention too jason i don't know uh what your thoughts on this but i think the soundtrack is superb yeah i'd have to go back and give it a listen um because i when i was watching the film i wasn't particularly paying attention to the audio i was more concerned about how the story from book portrayed into a two-hour movie so i I'll admit I, I was <laughs> was not paying attention to the soundtrack at all. Oh no, that's fine. I listened to it with my headphones on, and I listened to it very loudly because I wanted to like try and get as immersed as I could in it. Um, and now the soundtrack is um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, obviously, and a guy called Attic- Atticus Ross, and they've do, done a lot of Fincher movies at this point. Um, but like, they there's some very very clever use of soundtrack in the movie the 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 one specific scene where um salander has a very unfortunate run-in with this other gentleman um there is they use like ambient sounds and then they start to amplify ambient sounds so there's a scene in an office where nearby when she walks in people are doing vacuuming and you know that ro- like rolling sound of a vacuum how it's like it just rolls on and on and on they start to use that in the soundtrack and they start to pitch it up and make it louder and louder. So as things get more and more tense, it's really just like, it's like the ambient sound of the office is just getting more. And it sounds like, it sounds like really alien and like a very like, um, electronic the way they've kind of like manipulated it but it's really clever there's some very very clever touches. I'm going to have to go back and check that out. Cause yeah, that's right down my alley. I like oh no, you'd love it. 
No, totally. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, I was like, like Jason's probably really digging the soundtrack. It's, uh, <laughs> Jason was not digging the soundtrack. I know. Is that funny? <laughs> Turns out you didn't listen to it at all. No, I did not. I, 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 like I said, it's mainly because this is such a beloved story for me that I, I was very skeptical of how they could possibly put everything into this two-hour movie. And lo and behold, they cut out half the book and then gave you the cliff notes of the other half, <laughs> which is how they pulled it off. But it was still really well done. But, yeah. Okay, well, I think what we'll do now is we're going to take a quick breather. And then uh, when we get back into it, we're going to start, start talking spoilers because I have some things I want to talk about. That, like you said, the conden- the condensing of the plot to fit into the movie. Right. Um, there was some interesting decision made, made in like, I... I think it's going to be, I'm interested to see what you think, because I think we might vary on how successful we think it is. Um, but yeah, so when we come back, guys, we're going to start really pulling this apart. Lots of spoilers for you for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, book and movie. Hey guys, we're back. That was a quick break that we both had there. So uh, welcome back to the second half of our episode on the girl with the dragon tattoo. So Jason, um, there's something I wanted to lead off our discussion because as of now, I'm going to declare it, it's all spoilers. So if you've reached this point and you're interested in what we had to say about the book or the movie um, or both, um, by please, by all means, go and either read it or watch the movie and then come back and listen to it. Or if you want to keep going with us, just be aware that it's all going to be spoilers from here on it. Um, so something I wanted to bring up with you. So Stieg Larsson, apparently, when he was 15, did you know this? When he was 15, he said he watched a woman get gang raped by three men. And it was an acquaintance of his called Lisbeth. No, but that that is extremely telling now, <laughs> knowing that. Yeah. So I guess what happened was, he was obviously a kid and he was with three grown men. And I think he probably felt powerless to do anything about it. Or to, so he didn't stop it. He couldn't stop it. He didn't stop it. Um, later, he actually approached Elizabeth and he begged her for forgiveness. And she refused. Never, ever forgave him for it. So with that being said, he claims that because of that experience, he wanted to write a story about a woman who was a rape victim who took things in her own hand, in her, in her own hands, and basically got revenge, like seek revenge, and basically stood up for herself in a way. You know what I mean? Um, which is very interesting. Now, what's interesting about this story, Jason, is a lot of people say he's lying and it's not actually true, and that that story he actually said happened to somebody else he knew but it's then shifted to something that he happened to him. So there's a big debate about whether what his story is actually really his story or somebody else's story. That's interesting. I mean, it, I, 
I mean, I'm, it's really unfortunate for the the girl that this happened to, but in my opinion, honestly, it doesn't really matter whether it was a personal experience or an experience from a friend. Um, yeah, that's that sucks. That's that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I've never really dug into Stieg Larsson as an author. I generally don't dig into authors. Um, mm-hmm specifically because if I find something in their personal life that I just really don't agree with, then that's going to taint the way that I perceive their stories. Uh, Mm -hmm. So generally I leave them out of it and I only focus on what they've put forward as what they want me to, to read. Oh no, 100%. But it does put me in a weird position. Now I know this, that part of me now is sees it through two different lenses sees it through the lens of somebody who did experience something traumatic and did tr- like in a way write this novel as is as a way of him trying to get atonement for not getting involved and stopping the 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 unfortunate event and then there's another part of me that if this isn't true and it's not his story it seems pretty interesting the things that happen in the in the in the book through that lens if this is somebody who you know what I mean? If it's not a, a direct thing that happened to them, then in a weird kind of way, it makes everything feel more salacious to me and a little bit more interesting. So not interesting in a good way, but interesting in a way that like makes me question his motivation in the way that certain things are written in the book, where I feel like I, I feel there's a fine line in the book. And I couldn't really get into this before without spoiling. But with the the sexual violence that is inflicted upon Elizabeth Salander seems a little weird to me, tied alongside the sexual exploits of Michael Blomquist. And then ultimately, when we start to get into uh, Martin Vangers and his father um, in their um, horrific raping and murdering of women, there's something like totally for me that feels feels off. Does that make sense? Like, it just feels, it feels, and I can't put my finger on it. I, can't, I I never really got it when I watched the movie because I never really paid, I never read too much into it. But like, now I've read the book and like, when I, especially when I was reading the book. So what I'm trying to say is the, the rape scene in the movie, as horrible as it is, didn't feel as weird as the rape scene in the book. I think part of that comes because in the movie, you're seeing it as a third person perspective. But in the book, it's directly through Lisbeth's eyes and Lisbeth's mind that you're experiencing this. So I think that's kind of where the differences are. And I, th- I, I would attribute that also to the differences between Lisbeth and Mikhail. I think he just did a very good job of isolating those characters and not letting the writing of, of one character affect the writing of the other. That's a really good point. I'm really pleased you said that. That's it. That because that's true. He didn't. It's he's not apologizing for what happened to one character by changing the actions of another character no. to compensate for it. Okay, I like that. I like that interpretation of it. I think that kind of like I don't know. It balances it out a bit more for me in my head. You know, that's always the way that I perceived it from for mm-hmm. me. So for you then, when we're going to talk about differences, I guess, between the, the movie and the book, what really stuck out for you, differences, 
wise? Um, well, obviously there was a lot that was left out of the mo- uh, of the book when they put it into the movie. Uh, there's a lot of like the background information uh, behind Lisbeth's motivations and stuff like that. Uh, and then there's also uh, the ending was significantly changed as to where Harriet was and all that type of stuff. Um, well, I guess this is a spoiler section. So, <laughs> yeah, um, in the movie, uh, Harriet is in London this entire time. And you you see her throughout the movie a couple times. And then at the end, they're like, oh, by the way, this is actually Harriet. Um, but in the book, that is not the case at all. Uh, that, that character that's in London is there, but that's um, that's her... I always get the cousin. cousin yes, I, I always cousin, get the yeah. relationships mixed up in my head. I know mm-hmm. who they are. <laughs> they're, they're all vangers. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, she is actually there. But Harriet in the book is actually in Australia the entire time, which I think is a, a, a better way to do it because she is completely removed from everything that could possibly be going on in Europe. So. That was one of the biggest differences for me. Yeah, there's a few things. So I'll, I'll go through some of the things that I noticed that were different. Um, the, the main thing is something I think the movie actually does better than the book. Um, and the, that, that thing I want to talk about. So what ultimately ends up happening when um, Mikael Blomqvist um, puts two and two together and figures out who Martin Wanger is. He figures out that Martin Wanger is the, the, the young boy in the photograph that Harriet is looking at when we we get the other camera angle from right. the, the parade. So he puts two and two together, okay? So what happens is he, had, he ends up going to um, to his property and then one thing leads to another and he ends up getting captured by Martin Wanger and Martin Wanger puts him in his sex dungeon, so to speak, right. his hidden sex torture chamber dungeon, which is horrific. Um, now what happens is in the book... And I think this is just in the film in general. I think Martin Wanger is far more interesting in the movie than he is in the book. Um, the portrayal of him is very, very good. It's Stellan Skarsgård plays Martin Wanger in in the uh, movie adaptation. Not only is he a phenomenal actor in general, but he plays him as somebody who's a little bit more um, chameleon-esque and a little bit more controlled and a little bit more like able to switch between you know what i mean like his his personal face versus his private life yeah yeah and and he's he's far more sinister i feel like yeah as a portrayal yeah i i think that that's just something that movies can portray a little bit better than books uh just because there's all the 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 nuanced facial expressions Mm -hmm. that go on and stuff like that which i mean you could put into a book but if you did it would be extremely boring to read a scene you know his eye twitched as he's you know it's like uh, we're not gonna get into that Um, yeah there's a performance element that really elevates it and i can it can go the opposite way too it can be it could be over the top but i feel like in this particular instance it's very very effective however um, so ultimately when he's talking to Blomkist, we're guessing he's about to kill him, okay? Because he obviously can't keep him around and like he knows that like he's got to get rid of him. But because as most serial killers are prone to do during this time when they think they've got away with it, they start to uh, wax 
lyrical about themselves and start to give away way too much information about themselves. Um, but what's interesting is, is in the book, he um, Vanger very much talks about how um, submissive that his his uh, captors uh, his captives are when he takes them. Like women become very submissive to him after a while, and part of what he gets off on is the fact that he keeps them dangling along a line of hope. Where he's like, they think that if they play nice with me and they start to become friends with me, that eventually I'm going to let them go. And that's what I like to do. I like to string them along. And then, because I like to see the look on the face when they realize that they were fucked and they're like, they're not going to get out of it and I'm going to kill them. So basically his his kink is chronicling that he takes like detailed journals where he writes down like how they were when they died and what they said and what they looked like in the time that they died. And he's very much like, it's like a, it, it, like a guy who like collects um or, like, it's like a scientific journal tra- almost yeah like th- those guys who go to train stations and they write down like the date and time when the train arrives and what kind of train it was and what color it was you know what i mean like the chronicling obsessive chronicling of information so anyway which is all very stereotypical like serial killer-esque type thing but what's really clever in the movie is he doesn't really give the same speech he actually makes a really, really good monologue that was written specifically for the movie. Um, in um, Vanger actually starts to go along the lines of, he said, you knew yourself when you were outside of my house, when I invited you in for a drink, everything in your body said, get away. Like, you know what I mean? You knew that you shouldn't be here. But it, he goes, isn't it funny how we're more scared of hurting somebody's feelings than we are of actually getting hurt ourselves? And he was like, it's such an interesting data. And it's so well written and so well delivered. It's very chilling when he's delivering it. And like, it's a really, really great line. And it's not in the book. And um, I just think it's really, really effective. So I do think for me, that's one of the one of the big differences that I like I took away from the, the that I preferred in the movie than the book. There are now that's not to say it's like that all the way through. You know what I mean? I, but I do differ for you, Jason, that I do kind of like, I kind of like the twist that Harriet is actually living now under the assumed identity of her cousin uh, in London. And I kind of like that, like how it goes back to her. And personally too, I don't know whether, why they did it. There's, I, I, I did read up the, that they said, and then, so the guy who actually um, did the screenplay from the script, uh, for the script from the, the source material, he said that he he didn't he, that was one thing he didn't like about the book he didn't like how they went all the way out to australia afterwards he was kind of like i don't see why they're going through all these many steps he was like it felt just more it would be like more compact if you just it was closer to home and also if you think about it logistically from a filming point of view they didn't have to go to the outback right I, I mean for for the film's perspective i i get that the, all those points totally make sense but for me when i was reading the book like like the first time I read the book, uh, mind you, I, I read the book without ever you know watching any film adaptation or anything like that. So this entire time, I'm still thinking Harriet's actually dead. Mm-hmm. And then when you finally get to that point where they go to Australia and it's like she's here, it's like what? <laughs> yeah. So I I I like the fact that she was so far removed. Um, the fact that she literally ran as far across, far away as she could on the other side of the world uh, from the family that she grew up with that just totally tormented and broke her as a girl, that she just had to get as far away from it as possible. I liked that aspect. 
Well, let me question you this, and Jason, because I'm interested in you in this. So I agree with you that I think it is it is she is literally going to the opposite side of the world, which makes perfect sense because you would go as far away as possible from something that traumatic that happened to you when you were younger. Okay, then answer me this: Then why does she go back so easily? Because Martin was dead. But still, I mean, it's he, still like he was. It, he was the last person. Okay, I mean, obviously she couldn't go back uh, there when Martin was alive. No, no, she but can't. It, but you also got to remember, though, uh, that even though she was that traumatized and got that far away, she still had a, a very. She still was very fond of Henrik mm-hmm. because she was sending him the, the flowers every year on his birthday. So there, there was still a very strong familial connection, just not with her immediate family. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I mean, if she just wanted to cut off ties completely, uh, then, you know, moving to Australia, that makes sense. But then why would she still send the flowers? Oh, no, totally. And I guess, and she, she describes it as her way of, uh, she thought that in, in a way that, um, it was Henrik Fanger would just assume that that's her sending them, but it had the opposite effect. He yeah. thought it was the killer sending them to right. him, like, like taunting him almost, you know what I mean? But I do think it's like, it's just interesting that it would be something that traumatic that you would have to leave to go that far away to build a whole new life than to just be like, okay, it's cool. I can go back now. You know what I mean? Like you would still think that they, there would be so much inherent trauma just from where it is, just like that island, that that being around those people, those buildings, you know what I mean? Sweden itself, it would be st- like... True, but then again, at the same time, it's been how long at that point? Well, it was like 40, uh, 30 like years? 30, 30 years, give or take. Yeah. yeah, give 30, 40 years, yeah. So, so it's been a while. So she's but, definitely had time. I don't think that, there, you know, if, if you did back mm-hmm. that up by 15 years, there would have been no way in hell that she would have came back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at this point, you know, everybody that has affected her negatively is dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the only person, well, not the only person because anyways, the main person that she was, uh, very connected with in her family was Henrik. And he was at this point, you know, it's, it's, it's now or never. Do you want to see mm-hmm. him? If not, he's probably going to die. So I think that was also a very big uh, contributing factor to her coming back so easily, quote unquote. Yeah, no. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 just, it's interesting. I, I kind of like both, if I'm being honest. I, I, I like both uh, endings. I don't think one, I think they both work in terms of the, the reveal of Harriet still being alive. I think they both, they both have that kind of like, oh my God, because one thing's obviously the whole protracted Australian thing and the other one is like, oh, that's her all along. We've already in, been introduced to her. We've, we went to visit her, you know what I mean? Right. So like they're both kind of work as kind of twist endings, I suppose. Um, I think for me, um, so this is interesting. So in the movie, um, when Elizabeth Salander comes to rescue um Blomquist from Wanger, she hits him with a golf club in the book. <clears throat> in the book, she hits him multiple times. She hits him like three or four times, and it's a it's quite a protracted scene. Anyway, she's then she then gives chase to him. She frees Blomquist, who's getting basically choked to death. She she cuts the the noose thing around his neck, and she goes after him. She goes after Wanger. Wanger is escaping in his car, and basically she jumps on a motorcycle and, and chases him. She gives chase. Yep. Now, what ultimately ends up happening in the book is uh, Wanger 
essentially kills himself. He drives into another a truck on the other side of the road because he obviously know the, j- the jig's up at this point. He's screwed. You know what I mean? Right. So like he takes desperate measures and he, and he ends up killing himself. Doesn't happen in the movie. No. What happens in the movie in which I really like and I really like the line when she frees um, Blomquist, she turns around to him and she's about to give chase to uh, Vanger and she says, may I kill him? And Michael's like, yeah, you kill him. <laughs> and what happens is when she actually chases him on the motorcycle, she um, she chases him down and she kind of, in a way, forces him off the road in a way. And then he ends up hitting a, like a gas canister, yeah. a big gas tanker that's outside of a convenience store. And then what happens is she gets to go up and, and he's lying in the car and he's about to die. And like we know it's going to explode at some point, but she pulls the gun out. She doesn't actually kill him. The... The explosion Ultimately, does, she yeah. doesn't. She doesn't have to make the decision to kill him. Now, what's interesting, Jason, is I don't know if you know this, but in the Swedish adaptation, movie adaptation, it's slightly different again. Huh. So what happens is she goes up to him and she's about to kill him and she decides not to, but she's actually gets the, to make the decision to not kill him, apparently. Now, I'm not, I don't know if I'm 100% but I think that's how it happens. But in, in, in the Fincher adaptation, the American version, he, she doesn't even get the chance like, because I think if, she, had she been given the chance, I think she would have just put a cap in his ass. Oh, definitely. So she was about to blow him away. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like how they, there's that element to it in, in the movies, as opposed to in the book where it's, he just basically kills himself because it feels a little more satisfying because we feel like she's getting a little bit more come up and Yeah. It's, it's a little bit more of a character development on her end mm-hmm. because she was very... <sighs> very prone to seek revenge <laughs> at, at yeah. you know, she was, she was a very uh, short fused person, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And so it's totally in character for her at the beginning of the book. Had she just pulled out the pistol and shot him like four times in the face and walked away and then not felt any guilt about it. Uh, but yeah, I guess at that point it really kind of helps to show that she's progressing, uh, which, yeah, which you sure. don't get that progression at that point from her in the books. Now, for me, it's different in the book because she has her own mental things going on, but it's not what everybody is perceiving. The -hmm. fact that she goes to class, she doesn't uh, pay any attention, she doesn't do any of the homework, and then when they go to do like a psych evaluation, she refuses to answer any and all questions. That's not because she's mentally incapable, it's just her making a conscious decision to say screw you guys i don't want to have anything to do with you but and that puts her in the position of being a ward of the state it's kind of a a double-edged sword i guess for that decision um so in in my mind she doesn't in the book need as much of that um character development at that point because she goes through a lot of it leading up to there but yeah i do agree that um the way that it played out in this film with the explosion, uh, it kind of, it's it's more satisfying. Definitely more satisfying. Yeah, I agree. I think satisfying is the exact word. I think it's, he gets his just desserts a little bit more like, a little bit more like you get it. It's more fun. It's more fun to see him punished rather than just taking his own life. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and I didn't know if you know noticed this too, Jason, but so when she has um, assaulted, by her new ward, the um, the guy who's looking after her, who's a total sex predator, horrible guy. Um, so she obviously 
she endures that uh, terrible assault by him and then she goes back and gets her revenge on him with the infamous scene from the movie and in the book where she uh, I'm a rapist pig she tattoos on his stomach yep. and um, she bas- basically very much make, holds him accountable for his actions in, and she goes along the lines of from now on in you're going to uh, submit a report every month for me saying that I'm doing really great like I've taken control back of the situation your whole thing is that you like to be in control of women that's your your deviancy you know what I mean like total control and manipulation of another human being but I'm taking my I'm taking control back so it's very like empowering and it's very it's like it's very cathartic for us as a as an audience and a reader to know that she gets you know what I mean she gets to get back at this guy who did this to her in the movie though they have that extra scene where she goes up to him in the elevator yeah. and she's checking in on him yeah, no, that, I think that was a really I think nice that's touch. cute too. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was good. Makes him um, shit his pants just, for half a second. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, she's just like, I'm just checking in on you. I didn't think you, I didn't think your wording was particularly um, uh, praise, praising enough of, of me, you know what I mean? Um, I just thought it was, it was, it was a nice touch, you know, like, like just, it, just to show that scene, she's following it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I thought that was a good thing. Um, other than that, really, I guess for me, I think the main difference is really um, the beginning of the book is certainly is spends a lot of time going through the industrial history of Sweden um, in, in so on and so forth. And there's a lot more groundwork laid into the... But it, that's obviously coming from his background, being the journalist that he was, Stieg Larsson. This is very much his bread and butter. Yeah. Something he's very interested in. And like, I think a lot of people are interested in that. Uh, speaking about that that scene where she gets the revenge, um, one thing that I really liked that they did in the film was she did her makeup and she did the like the eyeshadow that was like very yeah. like demonic looking, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, or mm-hmm. something like that. I, that mm-hmm. wasn't in the book, or at least they didn't really focus on that. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was really good, like. Yeah, as soon as he yeah. opens his eyes, he's like, oh, shit, what have I gotten into? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of good visual touches and like a lot of, I think the, 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 the care and time put into her appearance specifically and like getting her to look just right. You know what I mean? I think like they did a really good job of that, like uh, with the wardrobe and, and like the makeup and the hair and everything. She's so, so striking. Yeah, in in the movie, yeah, and I think they did a great job. That that interpretation of her is, I think, great. Um, but yeah, so like the the book, obviously, f- far more I- interested in the mechanics and the um, th- historical elements of this story, uh, in terms of like Sweden's, um, um, what's the right word, Sweden's. Um, Anyway, I can't even think of the word I was trying to say, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, now, I'm kind of, I think that obviously you would have to cut that for the movie because you can't you can't go too too into that. Um, so I think like in terms of like the streamlining to the the movie, I think they did a pretty good job. And I think what's even more notable noticeable is the very end of the book is also the they kept this ending exactly the same, uh, where she basically she goes back. It's Christmas time. And she buys um, Martin Blomkiss. She buys him a, a gift, and she goes to to give it to him. And then she's waiting outside where he is on a bike. And then he sees him um, with his. Uh, it's his family, isn't it? Yeah, his actual family, not his girlfriend. Right. Yeah. So like, um, 
and then she's basically a bit lovesick at this point and you could tell that she was maybe thinking that their relationship was a little bit more than how he sees their relationship and like mm-hmm. that kind of like so it's a very dour end it's it's kind of a sad ending in a way um which also immediately kind of sets up that you know there's going to be something else so you know the story's going to continue and this isn't the last time we're going to see these two together and i think it's nice that the movie kept that in and ended on that note because I think it would be easy for the movie to be like, oh, we can't really end on that note because it's a little too depressing. You know what I mean? To take that out, but they decided to stick with it, which I thought was a good move. Now, interestingly, Jason, I guess the the Swedish movie does not end the same way either. They cut that out. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yes, I think they decided for like tone to remove it, I guess. But um, I like how it, I like how it stuck it stuck true to that ending because I think it's nice how the movie ends on that kind of a note. And I know for me personally, when I saw the movie um, for the first time, I immediately wanted to know what happened next. I immediately was like, okay, well, w- well what's going to happen next? Like, where are we going to go with the story? So it was. I think it's very effective to set up the the first book of a trilogy like that, or the first movie of a trilogy like that, with that kind of ending. Yeah, uh, I would love to see another film at this point i don't know if that's ever going to happen because it's been a while i don't think so yeah, i doubt yeah. it um but yeah no the where this the second book where this continues off of is a, is a really interesting story um there's one thing about um the the first story that isn't shown uh whenever you're reading the book uh I'm sure you noticed the, the the multiple reference to Lisbeth's all the evil when mm-hmm. all the evil happened. And I'm, I don't know if you realize, but it doesn't tell you <laughs> in the yep. first book what that mm-hmm. is. It, that comes out in the second uh, book. Uh, but they tried to put that in to the movie. Uh, that is one little side clip that I saw uh, that they really wanted to have a scene where... Lisbeth sits down and like gives this little monologue to either Bloomquist or somebody about that because that really sets up who she is and it also explains her reaction to the whole rape scene. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I could so I could tell you what it is, but if you're if you're gonna read the second book, I'd rather not. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna read the second book. Okay, so I'm not gonna yeah, say anything. Okay, cool. That's interesting. That's got me intrigued now because I really like yeah. that. You know what I thought was interesting too that they admitted in like I, it's not necessary, but the fact that uh, Salander was in a punk band and she still hung out with those women. Yeah. Um, and I forgot the name. I forgot the name of the group, but it has a pretty great the evil name. fingers. Evil fingers, yes. And how, how, like, over the years, they've all kind of started to conform to like society, and they're not as punk rock yeah, as they used to be. Normal. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like a like a friend group that they like they'll catch up with each other, and I thought that was that was cool. I'd like to have seen that in the movie too, like a little bit of that to get a little bit more of her story. Like, yeah, yeah, we kind of have to hit the ground running with her a little bit. But uh, but going back to that, all the evil scene um, that they very much wanted her to give that monologue, uh, mm-hmm. but the actress that was playing her uh, again, you can provide the name. Uh, yeah Rooney Mara <laughs> thank you um, she said that that it wasn't she, she refused to do it she refused to do the scene to the point where uh, this was uh, from what I uh, if I remember correctly it was only like three weeks into filming 
And so she was kind of nervous about the fact that she was refusing to do this scene that the director thought was uber important. Uh, Mm -hmm. But she refused because it it wasn't Salander. Salander isn't like that. She doesn't just open up to anybody and say, hey, this is, you know, something that happened to me in the past. You know, that's not her. Mm -hmm. And so so she was very adamant to the fact where they got into a big argument. She she goes back to her trailer. She's crying. She's thinking she's about to get cut. They're going to cast somebody else to play Elizabeth until eventually they ended up... um, giving a a scene later on where she kind of hints at it. And I'm not going to tell mm-hmm. you. Uh, <laughs> don't look it up. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, but I just thought that was that was something that was really, really, it made me feel a lot better about the actress, that she was really putting Lisbeth forward into the role. And it was yeah, done I, well. Very done. I never do that. I think that's great. I th- I love that. I love that fact that she's like, no, this isn't Salander. Like I'm playing Salander. You know what I mean? This isn't what you would do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good call. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, really, I can't think of too many other huge noticeable exceptions um, other than like the amount of time spent on describing things, the amount of time going through things. Um the movie does very much feel like the Cliff Notes version of the book. It yeah. hits all the real main points. And it doesn't um, give you anything it, in between that leads up to finding those points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does seem very convenient. Like, having read the book too, like, his his investigation, then his discovery, and then his putting two and two together with the photographs, and then all of that just seem, does seem to happen. Click, 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 yeah. click, click. And another thing that's omitted from the, the movie too um, is that 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 we don't really get this the sense of time passing during this investigation because bear in mind in the book he goes to prison and he actually serves his time in like a it's like a low low security prison and he actually does go in he gets released a little bit earlier because it's overcrowding overpopulation yeah I think he was the, released a month early so he spent two yeah. months so it, it does feel like you feel the passing of time when he's on this case, you know what I mean? And it's dragging on and he's like really in the weeds trying to figure this shit out. Um, in the movie, it does seem a little bit like, you know, it's very, it's like click, 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 click. Yeah. We get, we, you know what I mean? Cause it, that, it pretty much, it took the majority of a year in the book for this whole investigation process to go. But. And there, there is a, a, a nice link to, I was thinking, and it, it, it ties into, cause we both saw the Batman together. There's a little scene that happens and it's in the book and in the in the movie but um when Blomqvist is um being tortured or about to be tortured by Vanger and he's being kidnapped um Blomqvist still believes that Vanger killed his sister yeah and then Vanger yeah. turns around to him and he goes you're not a very good detective are you because he's like I didn't kill my you know what I mean he basically gives the game away and he's like he didn't know what happened to his sister either you know what I mean and like that is to me, when I was watching it there again tonight, it kind of reminded me a bit of the Batman when um, they, uh, I think it's um, the Riddler turns around to Batman and he goes, you're not actually that as smart as I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Despite being this detective who's on this case and really pulling it apart, he's like, I thought you'd be, you know what I mean? I thought it was funny. It just it reminded me of that a little bit um, because Blomkis, yeah, is still, he knows who did, he knows that Fanger is, a killer, a mass killer, a predator, but he still thinks that he killed Harriet. And I, and I do like, I do like the, the revelation that, um, Harriet 
ultimately killed her father um, by by the lake. And yeah. she that's what she did. And like she's she's an interesting character, and I think she's written very well. And I think like like that whole that whole element of the the plot I think is very interesting for me. If I have to be honest with you, Jason, though, I find that story far more interesting than the resulting story with. Um, Blomkist, in a way, getting revenge on um, Wennerstrom and then oh, the, yeah. uncovering the massive fraud. Like, to me, when all that's happening at the end of the book and at the end of the movie, it's a little bit like, to me, I'm like, I don't really care about this as much. Now. Like, I didn't need it. No, no. It, it What that serves a purpose of is, like, bookending, I guess you could say. Like, it starts anyway, off yeah. with mm-hmm. that and that gets the whole ball rolling. Uh, and that's how... Uh, Henrik Vanger can come to to Blumchrist and be like, hey, do this and I'll give you all the dirt on Vanger because he's been a part of my life uh, for such a long time. He wouldn't be where he was if it wasn't for me. And then uh, at the end, come to find out he didn't really have anything on him. Yeah. <laughs> and it was pa- was it past the statue of limitations? Uh, it was too like it didn't really have any good. No, there was there, good there juice was on him at all. There was no use to any yeah. of the information other than the fact yeah. that, you know, okay, yeah, he's an asshole. We all knew this. But yeah, I needed right. to, I needed something more. Honestly, um the second book in the series goes into the whole Venestrum affair. Like that's where that leads on to only it's with Lisbeth. Um, so without saying anything else about that, okay. it, it, that story sure. is still there. It's still relevant. Uh-huh. It's just not necessarily revel relevant to the first book and this story, yeah, for sure. mm-hmm. which, which I will admit, uh, the first book is like the whole mystery novel. There's not, not very much of that continuing on after that. So this is like, oh, if, if, yeah, if you're only going to read one book, uh-huh. this, just read the first one. It's a great novel. Um, mm-hmm. But then continuing on from there, it's, it's still really good. Uh, it's just not the same style. It's not a mystery anymore. Interesting. Okay. That, 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 that is interesting because, like, I I was wondering if it was just going to be like a different mystery. This is the next mystery. No, that no, in it, and I, I really like that because you know it, it would be too much of a coincidence. You know, it's like there's this huge mystery, and then oh look, now there's another one. It's like uh, yeah, right. No, yeah, it's not Hercule Poirot. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah, so I mean, that's it for me, really. Like, um, I I just found myself more interested in Salander. I, which I think is natural because she's she's just such an interesting character. More interested in her story, and then more interested in the 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 serial killer Vanger story than the corporate fraud um, insider trading stuff right. of uh, Vanestrom. Which again, though, I know people are super into that kind of stuff too. So like that's like there will be people who are like very interested in that element of the book um for me obviously just less exciting i think really uh, as a whole but um other than that yeah i I can't really think of anything else that really popped out to me that was like significantly too different or like too like you see that's one thing i did like about the film like it, it was done it was it was done very well it was you know, it, they didn't change very much of it. Um, 
they they left out a lot is what my big takeaway was. They left out a lot, but what they left in for the majority of it was on point. And I, I really did like yeah. it uh, apart from the ending, uh, mm-hmm. the Harriet reveal, but mm-hmm. from uh, filmmaking constraints, I completely understand them changing that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I think we're kind of wrapping it up right now. Yeah, um, I think so. I think I, I've, I think we've covered all of our bases. Um, so with that being said, so you recommend that I start the next book, which I'm going to. Um, unfortunately, there isn't another movie. Well, I could always start the Swedish movies and watch those, um, which I'm not going to do. I've got enough time, really. It's not nah. enough time in the day. Um, but I definitely think I'm going to move on to the next book. I think it'll be my next purchase on Audible. Yeah. And then, um, I did want to touch on one thing, Jason, though. We talked about this when we saw each other the other day. Um, listening to the audiobook interpretation of this uh story it is jarring for me to hear the the male narrator do the the female voices for female characters which obviously is a thing like you explained to me that's a big thing you have to do it (laughs) Um, you have to do it um so i think that's why to me because of that because every time i have to hear Elizabeth Sounder say something like dramatic or suspenseful or to confess her feelings towards Michael Blomquist. It's a guy doing a high-pitched voice. It, well, it, it takes you not... out of it a little bit, admittedly a little bit. And it... I think that's why when I watched the movie, I was like, oh yeah, I, I love Elizabeth Sounder because right. I'm not, you know what I mean? Now there are other, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a thing with narration that you have to do. Uh, this book was narrated by uh, Simon Vance. Is that was it Simon mm-hmm. Vance? Yep. Okay. I think it's Simon Vance. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was either Simon Vance or Scott Brick. Uh, both of those are amazing. Simon Vance is one of my all-time favorite narrators. He does a very good job. If you think that this was kind of jarring to hear him, you should try listening to a, a, a little less uh, a less practiced yeah. narrator when they actually uh-huh. try to do a girl yeah. voice. It goes mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, uh, Simon Vance just kind of talks in a higher register when he's doing uh, the female voice, which uh, the really good professional narrators, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah, Male and female. The females just, whenever they're voicing a male character, they just speak in a lower register, but they don't try to like, you know, overly make it masculine and vice versa. Male narrators don't try to make it ultra feminine. Because in the end, that's that would really pull you out even more. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, just something something I thought I'd bring up. Um, being that I'm now in the audiobook game, yes, <laughs> and I'm and in the next book I will it will be audio, I will do an audiobook. I'm not going to read the. It's just so much more convenient. I can listen when I'm driving. I can listen when I'm at work. I can listen before I go to bed. If I'm walking the dogs, I can listen. So I'm like constantly able to keep up with it. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> For- Very convenient. Okay, uh, Jason, before we leave, uh, do you have any recommendations? Uh, is there anything you've been reading recently? Um, anything that you might want to give a recommendation to the listeners? Because you, you're the guy to, to talk to about that. Uh, like just book recommendations or book movies? Yeah, one. No, uh, books. Oh, well, um, yeah. I'll, I'll, there's all, if, you, <laughs> if you ever need a book to read, I can tell you. Um, so I'm actually reading, a, a rereading rather, um, a series by. Pierce Brown is the name of the author. Uh, the first book is called Red Rising. Um, it's oh, okay. it's a uh, it's a sci-fi 
Uh, there's no, usually I read like fantasy, sometimes sci-fi. This is one of the few of the ones that I read that's strictly sci-fi. There's not really any fantasy elements at all to it. Uh, but it takes place well into the future uh, where society has expanded from Earth um, to live on like the moon and Mars and Venus and all the other planets. Uh, but society is broken down into color classes uh, with gold being the uh, the high top of the line folk and then various colors all the way down to red uh, with red being like the slaves, I guess you can say. Oh, wow. Um, they're not necessarily slaves. They're just, they're very exploited. Uh, for instance, this book starts off on Mars um, and the reds are told that they are here on Mars to mine a certain kind of element. Um, I think it's helium three or something like that. Um, that will help terraform Mars. So they're all sitting here thinking that they're like the pioneers of the expansion. When in all actuality, Mars was terraformed hundreds of years ago <laughs> and they don't have any idea of this. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really good book. Uh, kind of, uh, pulls in elements of, uh, like a battle Royale, like, but it's, oh, wow. it's done in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. where after, after the character learns that, you know, what the reality of the situation is, he is then altered, um, physically uh, this called they call it carving in the book but they they gave him stronger bone structure and, and they made him taller you know all this type they completely changed him changed his eye color everything and then he has to go into this school to try to um come out on top i guess you could say and it's a battle royale structure only it's very different it's not you know kill everybody else it's instead Here's your faction of people, which mm -hmm. he joins uh, the House of Mars. Obviously, mm -hmm. he's from Mars. Uh, and then there's also all the other houses, like the House of Venus, House of Apollo, House of... It's it's kind of very Greek uh, mytho uh, mythology-oriented. Um, oh, cool. And so instead of, it's, instead of being kill everybody, it's conquer everybody. So oh, okay. it's, it's not like a, this game lasts three days. It's more like this game can last years <laughs> so it's it's a really good book and that's just the first book and then it continues on there's a trilogy uh there's actually five books out at the moment uh the sixth book he is working on um he just announced that he is i think he's finished with the first draft and now it's going off to the editors so we could we should expect the uh the sixth book which is going to be the final book to be released um probably next year at some point and i'm really excited for that that's awesome. Those sci-fi authors, dude, they pump them out. They pump out the content. Depends on the author. <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah. Like, uh, uh, on the other hand, you have, like... Um, George R. R. Martin. Guy, the guy wrote... Yeah, it was notoriously um, slow. Yeah, there's that. And but, then there's um, also Patrick Rothfuss, who's, who's put out uh, basically two books. <laughs> and the second book was released, like, 12 years ago. And so everybody's wow. waiting for the third book, the conclusion, and they're great books. I highly recommend Patrick Rothfuss. I just am anticipating the release of the third one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for the recommend. That's awesome. So hopefully somebody listening out there can get a new book to read. And um, until we return, um, I guess that's us uh, done for today, Jason and I. Um, we're going to do another one of these. We'll do another uh, book to movie um, at some point. We just haven't decided yet what we're going to do. Yeah, we'll have um, to figure at some that point out. We'll- yeah, and we'll let you guys know when we do. But the next one will obviously be another page to screen. I'll think of a fun catchphrase or a fun name for the episode. You know what I mean? It'll be like a um, its own like um, sub series within the series of that we're doing of episodes. I think it's pretty fun. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for getting through this long and um, listening to me and Jason talk forever about Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And I hope it was uh, fun and you enjoyed hanging out. And uh, Jason, I want to thank you for for coming on and sharing your knowledge today it's been really fun as always i appreciate it okay till next time guys see ya adios